Welcome back to our study of Mark. We are blessed to have our former vicar, Vicar Doty, lead us through the first six chapters. And we'll be picking up with the seventh chapter. It's my plan to finish out Mark with you, and then maybe we'll do a baton handoff to our next vicar. We'll see how that goes. So before we pick up at Mark 7, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so to bring us back into context, one of the major themes of Mark's gospel, I don't think it's unfair to say, is the theme of fear. And we see, for example, the fearful powers of the demonic, the fearful powers of sickness and even death, the fearful powers of nature and the storms, etc., And most fearful of all is the one who is not bullied by these things, but the one who is master over them, and that's Jesus. So we see, for example, at the end of 6, chapter 6, if you look at verse 50, this is after Jesus walks on the water. They all saw him and were terrified. Now, of course, he says, take heart, ego, I, me, I am that I am, do not be afraid. But they are terrified of him, and that's a recurrent theme, and one we'll talk to, especially as we get to the shorter ending of Mark, so-called. Now, what we're going to do in 7, then, and indeed, thoroughly through 7, is we're going to see a transition into the theme of clean versus unclean the way the Pharisees and religious leaders at the time are viewing that, the way Jesus and the Old Testament scriptures are viewing that. And then we're going to see him, we're going to see this teaching moment, as it were, in regard to clean and unclean. And then we're going to see Jesus depart into Gentile lands, which are the lands of peoples who are wholly unclean. All right, so that's, in a sense, where we've been and where we're going. Just picking up at verse 1, I think the vicar had led us a little ways into it, but we may as well get the whole context here. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, Mark tells us parenthetically, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands holding to the tradition of the elders. That becomes key, the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Now, again, this doesn't, it's not that they have some knowledge of germs. It's that this is a ceremonial thing that perhaps they in some way became defiled or made unclean by something they had touched in the marketplace, so on and so forth. So the washing of hands is a show of covering oneself, making oneself clean. Now, does this have any 
biblical foundation or precedent? No. There's no thus saith the Lord. It's a tradition of the elders. Is it wrong to do such a thing as a tradition? No. You'd be free to do that. But when you bind other people's consciences as if they're sinning, now you have a problem. And so you take this tradition that they're free to do, even though it's not part of Scripture, and now they're making an accusation against Jesus' disciples. Hey, why don't you all do this? As if to say their failure to wash their hands is a sin or at least something wrong. Do you see the problem? Okay. That's the key. So, again, verse 4, just mid-sentence. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Because all of these things could, you know, potentially become unclean. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's a little silly. This is a little silly. Now, interestingly here, the word for washing is just the baptizo word. So it's the word from which we get baptism, which is why, you know, baptism, again, we shouldn't view the theology of baptism as any way complex. Baptism just means washing. It's not a washing away of dirt from your body. That's called a shower or a bath. But it's a washing away of sins. That's what baptism is. And that word, baptizo, I wash, just means that. And so here you have baptizing or washing of all these different things, cups, pots, copper vessels, dining couches. Now, what's interesting about that is some traditions in Christianity will say to baptize means to submerge. So you must submerge, fully submerge, or fully immerse the baptized in order for it to be a valid baptism. Interesting. Do you think that they hauled the couches up on their shoulders down to the river and threw them in and made sure to press them down so that the couches got all... No, of course not. So were, they baptized, were the couches baptized or not? Yes, they were. And they were baptized simply by being washed with water, not by being immersed. So, so much for the argument that the word baptism itself means submersion or immersion. It doesn't. And a verse like this demonstrates that. Okay, so they've got these traditions of the elders, fine, whatever, but not when they bind the consciences of others. Verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, so now they direct a question toward Jesus why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, that eating with defiled or unclean hands does go too far, and that point shouldn't be missed. Because has God said they're defiled or unclean? No, man has said that. Verse 6, And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Okay, when did Isaiah write? Some 800 years before this. So here is a precedent where Jesus takes an Old Testament text written to a different initial audience and applies it to his contemporary audience. 
And so also we can and we should do the same. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, now this is quoting from Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Okay? So the commandments of men are the tradition of the elders have been elevated to the point as if this were worship of God and as if this were necessary and failure to do so is sin. Failure to do so is to be unclean. You can see how this is just a sleight of hand and man has now introduced his own commandment as if it were a doctrine, as if it were a necessary worship of God. Jesus then makes his own statement in verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, he's going to give a very clear, concrete example of that in what follows. So, verse 9, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, so here's the commandment of God, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So the fourth commandment, moral law, connected with a civil penalty, a civil law, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So, thus saith the Lord, in other words, thus saith the scriptures. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban that is given to God. And then Jesus like cuts himself off here, uh, doesn't finish the sentence or finish the thought. Thus the dash there in the text. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Now, from a misreading of this text, you get people who say, like, no tradition, all traditions are bad. Is that what's being said here? No. And in fact, people who say that just don't think because they've got all kinds of traditions that they do in the church, in their spiritual lives, in their everyday lives. Traditions aren't the problem, not traditions per se, but, but traditions that replace the Word of God or traditions that are given the status of the Word of God, such that failing to do it becomes a sin. Those are the kinds of ways in which traditions become a problem. Does that make sense? All right. So what's this Korban business? All right. Well, whatever you would have gained from me, look, mom and dad, um, I know I have a duty to support you in your old age when you can't support yourself. There's not big retirement funds. There's not big 401ks. There's not pensions. There's not really a way to invest and live off your investments. How in, let's say, the first century, how do you survive if you're past the age where you can really work and bring home enough to support yourself and your family? You rely upon your children. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's a kind of beauty and symmetry to that that we can even recognize in the first part of... Uh, 
The kids' lives, they're taken care of by the parents. In the second half, they take care of the parents. And that's all the more the case where uh, there is no retirement, so to speak. Okay, so this is necessary. But now what are the children saying? So they've been convinced by the religious leaders that they can gain points with God and be more righteous than their neighbor if they take what they would have given to their parents and offer it to God instead. That's korban, offer it to the temple. Okay, do you see how subtle and devious this is? And, and it's just frankly satanic because think about it from like an existential perspective, like you're the child, okay? And somebody comes and says, look, you're going to be out the money anyway. You're going to give it to your parents or you're going to give it to, to the temple. What's higher, the temple or your parents? What's higher, God or your father? Give it to God. And so they give it to God and then they say, sorry, parents, I've got nothing to give to you because I've given it to the higher and Jesus like, looks to this and says, that's not piety, that's impiety. With this whole invention of korban, you've actually negated the commandment of God that says you're to honor your father and mother and you're to care for them when they can't care for themselves. Does that make sense then? Okay. So then at 12 again, Jesus says, then you, again, plural, no longer permit him, that is the, the son in this case, to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So it's a hypocrisy wherein they subvert the word of God. And we're going to see now he returns to this idea of clean and unclean and what in fact defiles a man. Because they've said that it's what's outside the body that defiles the man. It's what you might touch in the marketplace or wherever else. And if it's external, there's an external fix like wash your hands. Jesus is going to drive home a point that while they're so focused on the external, what have they utterly missed? The internal. is elsewhere why he calls them whitewashed sepulchers. Washed on the outside and looking and appearing clean and congratulating themselves that they are clean, but inside is all the filth and rot of death. Okay, so then you can see how 14 is connected, even though they put a paragraph break there. It's fine. It really is intimately connected with what's preceded. And he called the people to him again and said to them. Now, I think there is a sense in which he gathers a larger audience. Heretofore, it's been the Pharisees to him about his disciples. And now he gathers a broader audience. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And, and there is a break here between this and the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, which we're going to see, of course, Mark point out to us in verse 19 in explicit terms. Verse 17, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Were you aware of a parable? I wasn't either. But <laughs> so this is uh, one of the places where it's not clear to us, but 
even this language, it was taken to be a parable that there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. At any rate, they ask for an explanation. Verse 18, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? All right. So Jesus clarifies now. He's talking about food. And that's what the hand washing is really all about. Why do you not wash your hands before you eat? So if you don't, then you might, what goes into your body is going to defile you. That's the way the Pharisees and scribes are looking at it. And Jesus antithetically says, look, it's not chicken nuggets or sushi or hamburger or whatever it is you're eating that can defile you. Because it just goes into the stomach and then is expelled. I don't know, maybe that caused some snickers in the less mature crowd that Jesus would give such a crass biological reference. Who knows? Mark tells us parenthetically, thus he declared all foods clean. And that is where this is in antithesis already to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Who has the authority to change the ceremonial law of the Old Testament? I mean, who put it in place would be God through Moses. With this kind of statement, he is saying a greater than Moses is here. Indeed, God in human flesh is here. So even if you were to kind of make, if this was the only text you had and you were to make the claim that Jesus nowhere claims to be God, if this were the only text you have, he clearly does claim to be God because he claims to change the ceremonial law of God. Certain foods, according to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, are unclean. Jesus here declares all foods to be clean. Now, you have a little, I don't want to, I don't want to confuse you for, to no purpose here. I hope to avoid that. But it is helpful to see here some of the dimensionality, the three-dimensionality of the actual succession of events. So Jesus, let's say he's somewhere between 30 and 33, he has this initial statement declaring all foods to be clean. It's not till 33, after Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 10, that Peter has the vision of all the animals on the sheet being lowered, remember? And he's told, rise, Peter, kill and eat, and I think three times he says no, and three times the Lord says yes. (laughs) Okay? And then as time marches on, post-Pentecost, you have this continue to be an issue between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, because the Jewish Christians still have their consciences, to one degree or another, bound to the ceremonial law. Jews like Paul, he doesn't. They don't. But some of the weaker brothers do. While the Gentiles don't, and the Gentiles, I mean, we've always eaten everything. And that's kind of disgusting and even difficult on the conscience, uh, disgusting to or difficult on the conscience of the Jewish Christians. So that's kind of an issue. So even in Acts 15 at the First Council, which dates to 49 uh, AD, you know, some 16 years after the cross, 
you've still got this issue and you've got the church in the council saying that Gentiles should not eat um, strangled animals. So that is an example of a concession being made to the Jewish Christians that their consciences not be offended over this stuff. All right, so even though we might think of all of this as developing in the book of Acts and later on, it actually is within the ministry of Jesus himself at this point that he declares all foods clean. Later the vision is given to Peter. Later these things begin to be, begin to be recorded into the New Testament scriptures. So, you know, this event happens, let's say, in 33-ish or 30 to 33, Mark doesn't get around to writing this into the 40s. So for a decade plus, um, Jesus has already established this, and now Mark is looking back on that and saying, look, he declared all foods clean then, all the way back then. Okay, so again, I hope that wasn't unnecessarily confusing, but sometimes it's helpful to think about these events chronologically as they actually unfolded. Was there a hand? Did I see a hand? Or a, yeah, please, comment, question. Is this specifically only referring to food outside? Uh, I, I'm thinking of uh, <clears throat> watching with our eyes and listening with our ears uh, entertainment that they refer to today that's uh, questionable morally. And I mean, this is outside of us. Can that come in and corrupt us? In other words, uh, contrasting that with the scripture that says... Focus on what, what is good, true, noble, and right. Uh, yeah, I think they're you know, using some kind of template like James uses where um, you have the sinful desire and the temptation and these two sort of come together and sin is conceived. So that would be more what you're talking about. Where you've got this, you know, this inner desire and this external temptation, like something you're seeing on TV or something you see in life, you know, a scantily clad woman or something like that. Uh, and these two things, um, the, te- the desire and the temptation become one and conceive sin, and then sin, when it is full grown, brings death. Jesus is talking in a different paradigm here. And it is, I think, sp- you know, specific to food. If we wanted to try to develop that, how, you know, somehow beyond that, We'd have to be careful in how we do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, unfortunately, there is no, I mean, (laughs) there is no thus saith the Lord when it comes to TV or TV shows or that line between what you should watch or shouldn't watch. I mean, it's obviously good Christian counsel to watch as little TV as you possibly can uh, because you don't know what's coming on next. And, boy, has that only gotten worse. Now you can't even watch a sports ball program without some sort of abomination coming through your television screen. So, yeah, I mean, that's to be avoided or strained out or acknowledged as such, but even then, it's like, cumulatively, that still has its effect, so. I don't know what to say. I don't know what other guidance to give in that respect. Jesus here declaring all foods to be clean. It's not what comes into a person. What he eats just goes into the stomach and is expelled. And there you can see the the narrow contour of what Jesus is saying. But he hasn't yet made his theological point. That's verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person 
is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man. Now, this is clearly man in his fallen state. Certainly wasn't man, as in Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned. But it is now that we've given ourselves over to sin and become slaves of sin. The heart of man has been ruined. Which is always why, you know, I gave my heart to Jesus isn't maybe like the best expression because your heart is exactly as Jesus describes. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, um, fornications is a better way to say that. So that would be everything like outside of uh, marriage. Fornications. Theft, clear enough in all its forms. Murder, clear enough in all its forms to take the life of another. Adultery, then, is going to be a breach of the marriage. So that's how you make a distinction between sexual immorality and adultery there. That's a breach of the... So sleeping with someone else, having um, sexual immorality with someone who's not... You know, you're married and you have that with somebody who's not your spouse. You've broken the marriage effectively. So that's adultery... Um, coveting, you get some similar words here, like coveting, envy. Maybe there's another one somewhere in here. But I'll try to make some distinction, even if it's a little artificial. Coveting, generally speaking, avarice or greed. It's desire to accumulate wealth and stuff. Wickedness is just one of those very general words. Deceit. Um, guile is sometimes used. Sensuality. Sensuality is a tough one. I think, it's, I think we've got a blind spot here, probably because we're a very sensuous people. Uh, it's sometimes translated as licentiousness. Maybe kind of an antinomian, libertine, indulge the senses, indulge the pleasures. That's, that's probably a pretty decent... sense of sensuality. Okay, envy, uh, literally like evil eye or jealousy. So that's more like, like personally looking directly at this specific neighbor or this specific person and envying them and desiring what they have, maybe even scheming to get it. Whereas coveting previously avarice or general greed would be more general. Okay, following is slander or blasphemy. So blasphemy against God. Slander against your neighbor. Um, You can blaspheme a person. That's by slandering them. And if you think about it enough, that's kind of what blasphemy against God is. It's slander. It's saying something untrue of him or presenting him in an untrue way. Pride. So, I was having a conversation with someone about that. Like, where did, where did all this rainbow stuff come from? Why do they hate God so much? <laughs> did it come out of the fact that he sent uh, COVID upon us and now there's this hatred of him via the rainbow? And it's like, no, that just comes out of the heart of man that's antithetical to God. If, if God says yes, man, the heart of man says no. If God says this way, the heart of man says the opposite way. 
And so that's, of course, pride here. <laughs> Arrogance is what it means in its original context. But isn't that ironic? The arrogance of our quote-unquote pride here in the 21st century. Okay, foolishness, which can also be seen, like if you want to try to put a little... Foolishness is a departure from God and his wisdom. Um, it can also be immoderation. That's sometimes suggested as an interpretation of foolishness, immoderation. One of the traits I show in my uh, in this version is malice, mm. which is a problem we have in our world yeah, today. Where's, where's malice at? I have curiosity. Okay, so coveting wickedness is malice then? Yeah. Okay. I just thought that was, that's a problem we're having in our society today. So much malicious. Like hatred yes. or something like that? Hmm. An evil eye, blasphemy. Thania. Ephrusine, foolishness. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Pleonexia, malice. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's worth considering. Attempts to sort of like systematize this list fail. <laughs> you can see where Jesus just kind of lists a whole bunch of different things in no particular order or no discernible order, maybe we would say. It's not discernible by us. Since you're uh, doing Proverbs now, the I was just trying to think about this list. Which of uh, which of the items on this list are an abomination to God in Proverbs? I know pride is one of them, right? Arrogance. Yeah. Um. Just I thought that was interesting to try to compare this list to. The things that are already mentioned in Scripture. Yeah. And David in the Psalms, I think, mentions the seven abominations. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You can compare this list to, I think it's First Corinthians also, where Paul has a list that's even closer to this. I think, yeah, I think so. Micaiah, Pleonexia is coveting, and then Poneria is wickedness. Paneria is malice. My goodness. Yeah, I don't know. And then, what else? Yeah, I, I mean, you can have all kinds of fun comparing this list with other, with other ideas. So all of these things flow naturally out of the fallen human heart. And it's these evil things. So this is verse 23. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So again, I think you can see in contrast now very plainly what Jesus is after. You've got all these guys whose hearts are overflowing with wickedness. But they've got their, ans- their outsides all cleaned up and all presentable. And they're pecking on the disciples and on Jesus for not washing their hands, which doesn't even come from the scriptures. And Jesus is like, Okay, hypocrites, it's not what your hands touch, what enters your body that makes you unclean, but the fact that your wicked, thought, uh, wicked hearts are overflowing with all of this evil stuff. So the answer, obviously, is forgiveness, but the answer is a new heart. 
<laughs> we have to be forgiven. And then as, as being forgiven, we have to be given a new heart. And that's really what the new man is, a new heart with new desires and contrary desires. I mean, this is what Paul describes so well in Romans 7, where, look, if I, know, if I agree with the law that it's good, if I agree with this list of Jesus that it's all evil stuff, I recognize it within me, but I hate it and wish it wasn't there and fight against it, then it's not I, I who sin any longer, but sin that dwells in me. It's this alien, cancerous thing. That's the way we Christians view our sinful nature. It's the way we Christians view the heart, the old man's heart that flows forth with these things. We see it as no longer I, but sin that dwells within me. And we do everything we can to crucify the sinful flesh with its desires, as the scriptures say, or to drown that sinful flesh in baptismal waters, as the small catechism says. Okay, makes sense? Yeah, please. I just was thinking how confused we get between heart and soul and spirit and many oh, yeah. times we think, okay, we're talking about our heart, but now we have heart transplants, so you're not going to get <laughs> a new you know, spiritual heart with a physical heart. Yeah. So, What does he mean here by heart, do you think? Soul. Yeah. So soul in the sense of, um, a, and I think this is the difficulty, because he wants to use the word heart because you can, you can be a soul or have a soul. <laughs> however you want to put that, be a soul or have a soul. And then um, with that soul, you've got, the as a Christian, right, you've got the natural wicked heart that overflows with wickedness, but you have a new heart wrought and worked within you by the Holy Spirit. So I think conceptually it just makes more sense to have, to be a soul with two hearts. <laughs> or really properly to be a soul with one heart and now you've got this alien cancerous thing within you, Right. Um, to say two souls uh, maybe is even more confusing, you know. So yeah, that, that language of heart is just the innermost part of fallen man overflows naturally with these abominations, with these evil things. That's what makes a person unclean. And again, Jesus forgives us that, but then he's also going to put that to death and cause a new man to arise within us and give that new man everlasting life. So that's kind of what the spiritual surgery looks like that Jesus, our great physician, is performing on us. We understand it, but go back to Nicodemus. Well, how can I go back into my mother's womb? New believers have this misconception of what... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of room for debate there, and I don't, you can be charitable or uncharitable toward Nicodemus. Probably, it's, I think, I don't know, in final analysis for me at this point, <laughs> Nicodemus probably gets what he deserves, because he's, I don't, it's hard to believe that anyone would be that stupid. Yeah, he's being cantankerous, he's being ornery, he's trying to peck at Jesus, and so Jesus, and I think that's evident in the way that Jesus pecks back. And ultimately says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? These are basic. These are earthly things. Please. Oh, you're making me look at these words again. And I'm thinking the first set of words you could connect with the Ten Commandments. Like even evil thoughts like you should not uh, lie and so forth. The mm-hmm. sexual immorality, mm-hmm. theft, murder, adultery, those are all. And coveting even. And mm-hmm. then the next sex set of words are more like 
personality disorders or character disorders, and it's like going deeper. What you know, that's your condition, original sin, and it's expressed in all these malfunctioning ways. Yeah, yeah. I, you can kind of drive yourself nuts trying to yeah. jam these all in the categories: sexual immorality, sixth commandment, theft, seventh, murder, fifth, adultery. Oh, we're back at the sixth. Coveting, nine and ten. Wickedness, all of the above. Deceit, eight. <laughs> Sensuality, all of the above. I don't know. You know. Yeah. First four or, or so are like summations, and the others go deeper into each one. For example, murder, uh, malice, a heart of malice, um, of envy. There's murder in there, I think. Thinking they're getting deeper and deeper, you know, as he goes through this list. Yeah, maybe so. I don't know. And maybe there is a deepening. Maybe a case can be made for that. My my general perception of it is this is the divine shotgun of the law. <laughs> Just let it all roar, and it's gonna. It's gonna. Yeah, I mean, all of it's gonna hit hit you eventually if you if you think it through. But certainly, certain things are going to stand out to you. Depending upon you know your propensity for sin and the way your natural flesh is made. <laughs> right, not even pride. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, all right. So now what we've done is we've seen Jesus lay this foundation and the way Mark weaves the narrative together, Jesus has laid this foundation between like what is really clean versus unclean. It's a matter of the heart. And now the way Mark weaves the story together, you see verse 24, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and, or Sidon, I never pronounce it correctly, Tyre and Sidon. So these are Gentile cities. That's the point. And of course, historically in the Old Testament, they're very wicked places as well. But the point being, he is now going into an unclean region. From like a strict pharisaical perspective, even intentionally journeying to a Gentile land, why would you do that? But is Jesus concerned about it? No. He's going into an unclean land to interact with unclean people. They're outside of him. They're not going to defile him. Now he's in a different position because he's God anyway. But he's going into this unclean place and he's going to find and save whom he can. And in this case, a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile. So 24, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know Yet he could not be hidden. So, I mean, that's kind of a, a mystery and an ongoing mystery, this idea of hiding. There's plausible rationale for it. But if anything, I think just in terms of the narrative, it heightens the tension and it heightens a sense of mystery. Christ has his own prerogative and that prerogative isn't given to his disciples. It isn't even given to us as readers. There are parts that are mysterious and beyond our grasp. I think Mark does a particularly good job of that. An overarching presentation of Jesus and Mark. Jesus is, because this is your introduction to Jesus. Jesus is enigmatic and mysterious and doesn't spell everything out for you. 
and is at times terrifying on account of his power. And even his gospel toward you and his mercy toward his disciples and you is kind of terrifying because you recognize that the powers arrayed against you are so much greater than you. But here is one in your midst who's greater than those powers, who's greater than them even unto not being concerned about them or not acting how we would perceive rationally or cautiously. (laughs) So the fear of the Lord uh, is really kind of in the background of Mark, fleshing that out, I think in a very artistically well-done way. Okay, so I'm not going to speculate on like, well, was, you know, did he not want people to think he was you know, just the miracle worker and blepity blepity, whatever other stuff comes to mind. I think it's wiser with a gospel like Mark to let it remain enigmatic. 25, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean, that we're back to the theme, in this case an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, so obviously we're in a Gentile land and we're told she's a Gentile, so they're unclean. And the daughter has been overcome by an unclean spirit. So you can see the, the redundancy, the layering. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table, eat the children's crumbs. We've got the Reader's Digest version here, don't we? The other Gospels present the fullness of the narrative. Here, Mark gets us right to the point. Jesus tries to rebuff her by saying that the children should be fed first. That's the Jews, Israel. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The dogs being who? Gentiles. Jesus would be accused of a racism here in our current uh, overly heightened milieu. I won't, go, I won't go too far down that rabbit hole, but what we define as racism and the weight that we give it is just completely absent from the Bible. So I'm, if that's offensive, it'll just have to be offensive. <laughs> Talking about the traditions of man <laughs> overcoming the word of God. And this idea, if I can keep myself clear of racism, I'm a good person. And it pretty much parallels the Pharisees uh, who want to be whitewashed sepulchers and clean on the outside. Well, on the inside, righteousness is of an entirely different nature. And that exhibited here in Jesus. I mean, again, if, if, somebody, if some Lutheran said this today, he would find himself under church discipline for racism. It's kind of absurd. Um... Yeah, please. How do you define demons today? Where do we see demons? Just mental instability. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so... Okay, so what was the the first part of the question? (laughs) I know the second part of the question. How do we describe what a demon is today or how a demon acts? Because we have mental illness and all sorts of abnormal Mm. activity. Where does it become demonic versus... Some other cause. Yeah, the Roman Catholics have this really, um, I mean, as they like, 
try to systematize and over-explain and over-categorize everything. Like, yeah, there's like oppression and possession and all these distinctions along the way. Um, I think to what extent demons can afflict us with physical or mental maladies is left mysterious. The comfort we have is that they can't do anything more than God allows them to do. We can't suffer anything more than God allows us to suffer. That's the comfort and the extent of the demonic powers. Uh, If you find yourself creeped out by demons or overly fearful or timid, um, uh, St. Athanasius wrote a book, The Life of Mark Antony, which is, uh, or is it... No, it's not Mark Antony. I don't know what my brain just did. Is that some famous dude? It's, the, it's Antony. Uh, so um, he's the, the foremost, the father of the desert monks. And he's, he's just got all these, he goes out into the desert, and he's got all these battles with demons. I mean, it's worth reading because it's just hard to read as a contemporary Western person who, you know, isn't used to that worldview frame. But that's one of the chief messages over and over is he gives himself over to, you know, he's, he's got to endure and suffer these tremendous uh, demonic assaults, sometimes even physical assaults. And he gives himself over to the Lord. And, uh, and he says um, to the demons that the only, thing, the only authority you have over me is that which has been given you, which is, of course, a reflection of what Christ says to Pilate. The only authority you have is that which has been given to you. And so that's, I think that that's just a beautiful, refreshing way of realizing that whatever happens to you is within the hands of the Lord, within the bounds of the Lord, and you'll suffer it, and it's okay because he's granted you that cross. Yeah, there's this really poignant part in there, too. I mean, again, whether you take this as literally true or just kind of true in a poetic sense, it doesn't matter. It's not scripture. But there's this part, too, where he cries out to the Lord. I'm paraphrasing and maybe getting some details even a little distorted in my memory. But he's, he's had one of these demonic afflictions, and he's crying out to the Lord, and the Lord won't save him. The Lord won't help him. And he gets beaten within an inch of his life, and it's just terrible and horrible. And then the Lord shows up, and uh, Anthony's like, where were you? <laughs> and he's like, He's like, the Lord effectively says, I didn't want to rush in and save you. I wanted you to grow and conquer so that you could be proud and so that I could commend you now for the battle. And and I think that there's there's some uh, meta-truth, if you will, to that, that a lot of the reason why the Lord doesn't swoop in and save us when we want to be saved is because he's got greater things in mind for us. You know, it's the same, it's the same reason, like, if you just make it really small scale and your kiddo's suffering from something as a parent, you know, you might, your knee jerk might be like, oh, I'm going to go spare them that. And then it's like, no, I want to see how they handle it. <laughs> I want them to grow and develop into being able to handle that. It's an important part of uh, the parental role is allowing your kiddos to overcome different challenges and obstacles that they face and not just rushing in and saving the day all the time, right? It's how you strengthen them and cause them to grow and that's effectively what Jesus was doing for Antony. So, okay, where was I going with that? I was going with that, that the comfort of the demonic. So we don't need to so much parse out. I don't, I don't know how important it is to parse out. Did this schizophrenia come from the devil or not? 
God allowed it to come. Did this, did this uh, manic depression come from the devil or not? God allowed it to come. That's all that matters. And God will sustain you through it. Now, are there ways to distinguish between mental illness and demonic possession? Yes. Um, there are general ways to do that. It's done slowly and painstakingly. And about the time they start speaking in Hebrew backwards is the time you might go, okay, that's a d- demon. That's not uh, schizophrenia. So there are tells. And that can be fetched out. What's the other question? Where they, where they come from? Or who, are, who they are? Um, I mean, the short form is that they're fallen angels. That's the short form. There's probably a little more to it than that. Uh, at least that's sort of pre-Augustine. There seems to be more to it than that. There seems to be a more dynamic understanding of the spiritual world. Um, Post-Augustine and in the Lutheran tradition, as we inherit it in the West, it seems to be really kind of cleaned up. And a lot of it is sort of uh, the bad angels fell and they're, and they're confirmed in their fall and the good angels stood and they're confirmed in their stand and now they can't fall one way or another. But that doesn't seem to fit some interesting parts of Scripture very well. So, I don't know. I don't know. Um, could, it be, could it be that good angels can fall even now? It's an interesting idea. If an angel falls, then it's an antithesis to God. It kind of falls under this heading of what we commonly call demons. So, I'm sorry? No, I don't think so. So I think it's that they're, I think that the bad, I think it's true universally that the bad are confirmed in their bad. But that the good are confirmed in their good is a little more questionable. The proof text kind of slung out by the Lutheran Orthodox, a little less convincing. I mean, I don't mind it. I just hold open the possibility. So, for example, um, in the uh, intertestamental period, which is like really kind of the neighborhood, the historic neighborhood for when the documents of the New Testament were written, you tend to have a more dynamic view, like Satan fell in the garden, but then something else angelic happened in Genesis 6. This is the whole Nephilim thing. But the potentiality for a fall there, and the potentiality that, even if you don't buy that, that angels were giving men knowledge in ways that led to greater and greater sin. So I think that there's a case that can be made for that too. And then Babylon seems to, uh, or the Tower of Babel and all that, um, what happens after is God gives it over to the gods, but how does that go? He, God gives that over to the lesser gods, the, the specific Elohim, the council of God, but instead of instructing the nation, and he disinherits the nations, but instead of bringing the nations back to God, they instead determine to be worshipped by God. So that's the birth of what we would call normally the false gods and the false religions. So when you get to the midi- the I mean excuse me the intertestamental period there and look at the literature biblical and non I mean by biblical I mean the the canon Jude 1st Peter 2nd Peter to a degree yeah um, it's more complicated. So 
The demons are spiritual beings created good by God who have fallen away. That's a safe bet. Um, who they can uh, possess, bodily possess, this girl's bodily possessed, is a matter of some controversy also. Not Can a Christian be possessed? Not even the Lutheran fathers agree on that. So, does a Christian have to not be a Christian? You know, commit a sin leading to death or something like that um, in order to be overtaken and possessed by a demon that goes back and forth amongst the church fathers because there's, there's kind of sound biblical arguing, argument and reasoning that can go either way there. You've got, on the one hand, Scripture tells us um, to be aware of and be cautious of the devil who, uh, he's, not, he's not powerless. He's able to, I mean, he's seeking whom he may devour. And that's not a warning to unbelievers, that's a warning to believers, but on the other hand, you also have this promise in Scripture that if you resist the devil, he will flee. And yeah, and look at that. It says, from you. So in that sense, we've got, I mean, in terms of probably like raw power, we're underneath the devil. But in Christ, we have, we're empowered to resist him, and he ends up fleeing from us. Church fathers have some great things to say. Can't remember which one in particular. Might be Irenaeus, but I can't remember. Talks about how we uh, how we look to the devils when we come back from communion with Christ in our lips and the body and blood of Christ, um, and how terrifying we are to them. Kind of makes sense. I mean, how large are you? But if you see a mouse run across your kitchen floor, you're up on a chair screaming, right? Or I mean, maybe not you men, but you're at least back. You're at least jumping back and getting a broom or something. Uh, startled by something so small. Maybe even driven away by something small. And that's, um, maybe that's a little bit of a window into how we appear to the devil, having just communed or resisting him through prayer and uh, fasting, what have you. Okay, so she's in an unclean land. These are unclean people, and an unclean spirit has come into one. Jesus goes into this Gentile land. He enters a house. He tries to do so undercover, not wanting anyone to know, yet they fetch him out. And so this woman comes and makes her petition. Jesus, here in the short form of Mark's gospel, rebuffs her, let the children, that is the Jews be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, namely the Gentiles. She answers him so beautifully, so wonderfully, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. So a lot more formal here in Mark's recording. Elsewhere, you have praising of her great faith by Jesus, but just tersely expressed one of his statements. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Why didn't Jesus preach law and gospel to her? Why didn't he try to save her soul? Because she would have already believed. She would have already known that here is one who has power over the demons that no one else has power over. She would have already known that this is 
God and goodness in human flesh who visited her to save her. She would have already known that he commended her faith and commended her persistence. She doesn't need to be told her sins are forgiven. She doesn't need to be told she's saved. She already knows it. Jesus already knows it. That's kind of hinting at what I was getting at in the earlier class today, that Jesus doesn't always make it obvious, but it is. And it is to those with whom he interacts. Okay, so verse 30, we're given the conclusion. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. All right, next, uh, yeah, that's great. Maybe I'll comment on this a little bit next week at the start, but Jesus does these Gentile missions ostensibly for like a single person (laughs) and then is back. So he returns from the region of Tyre in verse 31, Tyre and Sidon. Um, Let's pick up there, chapter 731 next week. The Lord be with you. Two weeks from today, chapter 7, verse 31. The Lord be with you.